0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from James 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, be to God. Thanks Dakota. Well, good morning to each of you. We're really glad that you're here with us this morning at Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, we're so glad that you've taken this time to gather, uh, to sing uh, with one another, to remind one another the truths of the gospel. And we want to continue uh, in doing that now as we uh, look at this passage from the book of James as we continue in our series in this letter uh, that James wrote. And so as we do that, as we continue worshiping in this way, I would love uh, to just pause briefly and ask in prayer for the help of the Spirit to understand and apply and hear these words to us. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, you have given us the gift of your word, and we pray uh, that by the power of your Spirit that this morning we would not be hearers of it only, but doers as well. Would your spirit illumine those places in, in my heart, in our hearts, uh, in our lives where we may need to make changes, where we may need to grow? And would you give us the courage and the strength by your spirit to do that, what we could never do on our own? So we ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I, I think everyone knows that favoritism is wrong. I don't know uh, anyone who's arguing that favoritism or showing favoritism is, is a good thing and something we ought to be striving for. I, I also think nearly everyone believes that favoritism is a problem, um, whether that's in their workplace or their school, um, in, in our city or in our country at large, that, that favoritism is an issue. It's a, it's a problem. But I think very few people know what to do about it. And I think also, if we are honest with ourselves, that we recognize that favoritism lives in our, in our own hearts, in our own lives. That there are moments when we've treated some people better than others. When we have ignored or overlooked certain people. This is, this is a problem on the playground as much as it is in the boardroom. It's a problem in the classroom and in the church. And I wonder if you're here this morning too, if you've ever had the experience of being sort of on the outside of favoritism, Uh, meaning where you've had a situation where where someone else has been shown favor and you've been left out or excluded or overlooked because someone else was playing favorites. That's a terrible feeling. And not only is it a terrible feeling, depending on what it is that you are excluded from, might have long term implications for your life, your family, maybe even generations or whole groups of people. But we're also so quick to perpetrate favoritism on others, even when, maybe even especially when we've been wounded by favoritism. Catholic uh, theologian and spiritual director Richard Rohr says that all pain that is not transformed is transmitted. All all pain that is not transformed is transmitted, meaning that if we don't deal with our own woundedness and brokenness, we tend to wound and break others. And I remember when I was in Boy Scouts, that was a big part of my life. That was like my prime activity as a kid. I didn't do sports. I didn't do, I was into scouting, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. When I got to Boy Scouts, you had the, the big unit was called the troop. So you were a part of a Boy Scout troop, and then that troop was divided into patrols. And that was kind of the smaller group of six or eight other kids that you would do. Um, You know, you would camp together, you would cook together. That was kind of your your smaller unit of of kind of friends that you would spend time with. And when I came into the the troop, I was a part of, uh, well, I should say this first. There was... Four or five patrols, Eagle Patrol was was the best patrol in our troop. That had like the coolest kids, the ones who knew the most about camping. They weren't necessarily like the the most popular kids, but they were like, if you wanted to really hang with the kids who knew how to camp well, um, who were kind of pro at the scouting things, that was Eagle. I was not an Eagle when I joined Boy Scouts. I was in Hawk Patrol. And Hawk was like a new patrol that was formed for us kids who were coming in new, and it was it was definitely not the cool kids, and I, like, so wanted to be an Eagle. I did not want to be in an Hawk, and I, I was trying to think this week. I don't remember how this happened, but I guess occasionally, like, we would change up patrols, or, you know, kids would leave or, or graduate, and so there'd be openings. Anyway, at one point, I got the chance to join Eagle Patrol, which I, I took, and I felt like, oh, yes, like, finally, I'm with, like, Eagle Patrol. And, you know, instantly, though, as soon as I was a part of Eagle... I was like I definitely don't want any of those other hawk kids coming into our patrol or just any other it was like amazing like overnight I had this super protective like this is like my group and I don't want to let anyone else in. That experience of having been sort of excluded so quickly as soon as I was a part I didn't want anyone else in. So favoritism is the problem. And the pattern repeats, the problem continues. But what we discover here in James chapter 2 is that real faith sets us free from favoritism. Real faith has the power to set us free from favoritism. And if you only remember one thing from this morning, if you only write down one thing today, I hope it's that, that, that real faith frees us from favoritism. And in Jesus, we have the power and the resources to be set free from favoritism, we, to, to fight it in ourselves, to fight it in our, our church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools. And, and we need to hear what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says here. Because if, if we don't, if we overlook what he says, either we will, one, kind of remain ignorant of the favoritism that is taking place in, in our own hearts, in our own uh, homes and schools— neighborhoods so either we'll just sort of not even be aware it's happening or if we don't fully hear what james says here the the other thing that could happen is that we try to deal with favoritism in ways that bring shame or more favoritism or both but real faith can set us free real faith doesn't play favorites and so I'd invite you to grab one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, if, if you haven't already, or um, if you pull out your phone and just type in James and the number two into your Google search field, you'll, you'll bring up a, a passage, uh, or a website that will have that passage in it, and you can follow along. I'd love for you to, to follow along with me here. And we're in this series in the book of James, which is a letter written by pastor james james was the pastor of the jerusalem church Uh, after jesus's resurrection james was jesus's half brother Uh, he grew up with jesus he didn't believe in jesus until after the resurrection But now he's a pastor, he's a leader in the church, but the Jerusalem church, primarily made up of Jewish people, has now been scattered uh, after, most likely, the persecution, um, the martyrdom of Stephen, who was another early church leader, but he was killed for his faith, and it tells us in Acts chapter 11 that then a lot of the Christians who were in Jerusalem fled. And so James, as the pastor of these scattered Jewish Christians, is writing this letter to help them to hold on to real faith not just real belief or real doctrine, as important as those things are, but in some ways, believing the right things, believing the right truths is the easy part. What James really wants is real faith. That is whole life transformation that actually changes what we love, that begins to change us at the level of what we desire, what we want, what we long for, how we live. And maybe most importantly for the passage that we're looking at this morning, how we love one another. Faith and favoritism are incompatible, and only real faith can set us free. So all freedom comes, as Jesus taught us, right, through knowing the truth. Jesus said you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is often uncomfortable, but it's the only way to freedom. And so in love, James confronts his readers, and he confronts us with with three choices that are able to set us free from favoritism. They aren't necessarily easy to hear, but they are true, and they have the power to set us free. So let's take a look this morning. The, the first loving choice that James confronts us with in this passage is this, that you can favor the rich or you can trust Jesus. You can favor the rich or you can trust Jesus, but you can't do both. Uh, listen to what James says here. This is chapter two, the beginning of it, verse one. It says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality, no favoritism, no prejudice, all those are legitimate translations, no partiality, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I told you James is not like he loves us, but he's also willing to say, when you do this, you have evil thoughts. Not just like, oh, your thought your thinking's a little off. He's not afraid to say this is actually evil thinking. Evil thinking. But remember, freedom is the goal here. So, so stay with me, even though James has just told us that our thoughts are evil, stay with me here. And, and let's focus on this, this first part for a moment. Because the situation isn't isn't complicated, right? It doesn't take a lot of imagining to put ourselves in the place of, of the church that James describes here, right? Imagine uh, that you are here at the Brookside campus, and maybe you're serving on the greeting team that morning. So you're, you're standing at the door, one of the aisles, or maybe you're at the, the hello wall helping to, to greet first-time guests, and hopefully if you are, are newer to Christ community, you had someone greet you well and, and point you where you should go this morning. But, but imagine you're serving on one of those teams, and you see a nice car pull into the parking lot, and as someone's walking there, he's like, wow, that's kind of a tall person. They're pretty well built, and they get closer, and you realize, oh no, it's, it's Patrick Mahomes. He's here at the Brookside campus. You gotta imagine, it's like a Monday night game, right? So he has Sunday morning off. And, you know, I actually, from what I understand, he actually doesn't live that far from here, so it could happen, right? Pat Mahomes wakes up and's like, I think I'll go to church this morning, maybe check out the Brookside campus, walks in. And of course, you immediately greet him, you welcome him, you, you point out where the restrooms are, children's ministry is at, do you need to take, take, take anybody down there? Okay, good. Um, you, you make sure he has the, the a nice, comfortable seat and make sure that, that no one else is kind of crowding around him. You, you make sure to have him sign your, your real faith companion book. You know, you get the, you know, the autograph in there. Make sure he has one that he can follow along with. And you just pull out all the stops to care for him. After the service, you say, hey, hey, Pat, can I, can I go pull your car around for you? Maybe because you want to drive his car, but you just want to care for him so well. And you just spend all morning fawning over this guy. And you do for, for Pat, for Patrick Mahomes, what, what you would never have done and, and actually couldn't have done for everyone else there that morning. And, and that right there is, is the problem. You're doing for that person what, what you couldn't even do for everyone. Because James tells us here that we can favor the rich, you read there, the, the popular, the known, the famous, the powerful, or we can trust Jesus, but we cannot do both. Now, the context in which James is writing this in the first century in Jerusalem, the economic situation is different than where we are today. It wasn't really a, a middle class. You had people who had wealth, who typically owned land, and then you kind of had everyone else, whether you were free or slave, there wasn't really a a middle class group. You had those who were wealthy, who had power, who owned land. Um, It was very much more of a a zero-sum game. This is a different economic situation than we live in. And it was a a kind of a, a, a patron client, is what they would talk about. So you would have to gain favor from those who were landed, from those who had influence, to get things done in the ancient world. You needed influence to get that contract, to meet the other people who you needed to make connections with. So it was natural in that kind of patron-client economic system to cuddle up to those who were wealthy. Now, our economic system is slightly different today, but at one level, like, this is still the same, right? It's like, aren't, aren't we tempted to treat the powerful, the influential, the wealthy better than others? To say, this person can give me the contacts I need to make my business thrive, so I'm going to treat them differently than my other friends. This person makes me feel good about myself, feel popular or loved or or cared for, so I'm going to, to make fun of those other people they don't like just so that I will fit in with them. And, you know, whenever we do this, whenever we find ourselves tempted to show favor in some way, whether it's in our church family or in some other context, maybe in our family, family, or or a particular employee or student over another, a friend over another, we need to pay attention in those moments. When we realize, ooh, I think I have been treating someone different, or I feel the tug to pull towards treating someone different. We need to stop in those moments and be curious. Not, Not condemning at first, but at least at first be curious, what is going on there? Because that that, pull, that draw, that temptation is an indicator. It's an indicator that we may believe in sort of the core of who we are, the deepest part of who we are. That that person or that group of people, that type of person that we're tempted to show favor to, that, that we believe that they have something that Jesus doesn't. That there's something that they can give us that Jesus Again, maybe we don't consciously think that in the moment, but it's an indication that maybe deep down, that functionally that's what we believe is true, that there's something that we can get from that group or that person or that kind of person that we think that Jesus can't give us. And, And this is why favoritism is such a human problem. It's why we're so tempted to play favorites, because we all have core longings that deep in our hearts, we, we need to have men. And, th- and they're good things, but they can so quickly turn into idols. Um, a number of people have written on this, David Pallison and others. Pastor Tim Keller calls these root idols uh, that we are tempted to meet outside of Jesus. So here are four kind of root idols. Uh, there's power, control, comfort, approval. And again, these things in and of themselves, they, they're actually good good things. They're good desires. The longings that God has placed into our hearts. A a longing uh, for power is a longing for influence or or recognition. We are made in the image of a God who is powerful and created and has made us in his image to rule and reign with him. Likewise, control. We are made in the image of a God who who designs with order and sets out plans. And so a a longing to to have things go according to plan is, is a good thing. Again, we are created by God to enjoy good good gifts, to experience pleasure in life. So a longing for comfort is not a bad thing. The same with approval. Longing to be accepted, to be desired. But here's the problem. When those things become ultimate things, those good things, when they become ultimate things, they become idols that pull us away when we try to meet those things outside of God. And they can draw us to, to play favorites because when we have those things in our hearts as ultimate things, we can be tempted to look at other people to get those needs met. So for instance, if you have a root idol of power, that can cause you to show favoritism to those who you think will help you gain influence, or climb the ladder in, in a corporate setting, or to get in good with the, the right group at school. So if you have this core idol in your heart of power, then you're going to be tempted to show favor to those who think that you think can, can help you gain that influence and recognition. But maybe you don't have a root idol of power. Maybe that's not the thing that that you feel most in need of. Maybe it is more of comfort. And so you're, you're drawn to those who are easy to be with, who are very similar to you, who it's easy to talk to, but people who are different than you in some way, who you're uncomfortable talking to, you tend to ignore or overlook. Because in those moments, the thing that you're actually functionally trusting to save you, to rescue you, is the experience of comfort rather than Jesus. And we could play this out with the other two as well, right? Approval, right? You you so want the approval of a particular kind of person or group of people. And, And so rather than recognizing that in Jesus, you are already loved and accepted by the one person whose opinion of you truly matters, the God of the universe. We show favor to those who we think will give us the approval we long for and end up excluding others. You see, this is why the gospel isn't just about the beginning of sort of getting into the Christian life, but it transforms all of it because it undoes these root idols. That when we recognize that in Jesus we have the one who is humble, who exalts the humble. We don't, we don't have to fight for our own power and control, but we can trust him to, to raise us up at the right moments and to give us the influence in the places, even if it means long seasons of obscurity, that we can trust him to give us the power at the times that we need. That he's the one who's in control, that, that we have all the comfort we need in him so that we can step out into to places of difficulty knowing that he's always promised to be with us, even when we're uncomfortable, even when we're afraid. So we have to ask the question, whose favor are we after? And I think if we really took a moment and thought about this, there's someone in our lives that when they walk into the room that we're ten, you know, we, we tend to sit up a little bit straighter, listen a little bit better, work a little bit harder, that we're more tempted to bend the rules for, more likely to compromise boundaries, our, our standards and our practices for them. Because we think maybe they can meet one of those core needs. Again, it's not out of the goodness of our hearts that we treat them that way, but because we want something from them. This is the kind of the dual um, problem with favoritism. Not only does it sort of diminish those who are on the outside, who aren't receiving the favor, but even those who are being shown favoritism, it's not because of who they are as an image bearer. It's because we want something from them. But real faith sets us free from favoritism by liberating us from the need to get approval, power, comfort, recognition, control from others. Because when we have those things met in Jesus, we're able to treat everyone, rich or poor or alike, easy to talk to or not, with dignity and mercy. Which leads us to the next choice that we're confronted with in this passage. So imagine, again, the scenario we had earlier. You're, you're greeting on a Sunday morning, and you kind of are looking down the street at the parking lot, and you see someone pushing the shopping cart in there, and it's full of junk, and you see them walking up to the building, and as they walk in, you say hello, but you kind of mostly are just hoping that they'll move on. And, and, and they have to ask you where the restrooms are, and they have to ask you to introduce them to a pastor, all that stuff. And you reluctantly show them around, but you're kind of keeping a close eye because you don't want them to take—are they going to take too much stuff? Are they—you're just kind of ready to be taken advantage of in that moment. And, yeah, they don't smell particularly good. And so even though it's obvious that they kind of ha- have a hard time seeing and hearing, you, you say, why don't, why don't you sit back here, maybe away from the other folks, and you kind of even think, well, you know, it's okay if they don't come back because I'm just not sure— it's not, it's not that you don't like them, but you're, you're worried, like, well, am I going to become the, the person that they always seek out? Or maybe this just isn't the best fit for them. I mean, they, they need a church, but maybe they need a church that's better fitted for their needs. And I hope they have a good Sunday, but I also kind of hope they, they just move on somewhere else. The, the problem is that how you, you felt about Patrum Mahomes the week before is exactly how Jesus feels about that person. He's ecstatic that they're there. Because as James points out in chapter 2, verse 5, he gives us this choice. You can either ignore the poor or love who Jesus loves. So listen again to verse 5 here. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who love him. Now, listen, God loves everyone. And James is not saying that that God somehow plays favorites with the poor or only shows grace to poor people. Far far from it. In fact, we know from James chapter 1 and verse 10 that there are materially wealthy people in these congregations that James is writing to. God does not play favorites, but God has chosen those who are poor in the world, meaning according to the world, those who are viewed as less than, to be rich in his kingdom. And James knows, and his readers know, that lots and lots of poor people, discarded people, ignored people, are coming to faith in Jesus. And that may look like favoritism to the world, but only because the world has never shown favor to these people. And God's love for the poor says less about him and his priorities than it does about us and ours. James is reminding us that the very people, the same people that we tend to overlook, to ignore, to avoid, and to judge are the very people that Jesus goes out of his way to welcome into spiritual family. And again, this is all over the Bible. This is not just James. He's not the outlier in this. This is is across the whole story. This is Paul. This is Moses. This This is Jesus. That the people that nobody wants to be around are the very people that Jesus seeks out. And this is hard because, because it pushes us outside of our comfort zone. And I'm, I'm the first one to, to say, this is difficult for me. Really difficult for me. I mean, it's great in theory, but like in practice, when there are people or needs that are uncomfortable, it's a lot easier just to move on and to stop and to say, what is really required of me here? It means asking the question, I think, for all of us of of who do we not want to serve? Who on a Sunday morning do you find yourself wanting to avoid talking to? Uh, Who at school do you not want to sit by? Those are the people who Jesus has particular care for, particular affection for. Now, at the heart of this desire is not to serve as a... The the heart of this desire not to serve, of this reticence to serve, is is that we're making a judgment, an evaluation on our part. And that's what James says, this language of judgment is all over this passage, that we're, again, maybe not fully consciously in the moment, but we are effectively making a judgment that that a person that we're uncomfortable with is, is less important, less worthy, that they are worth less than someone else. I think another thing that is difficult for me in these moments when I find myself in them is that, that I think if I were to love and care for and serve this person in some way that, that there wouldn't be enough for me or for my family or for my people. I, I, I think I so often approach those things with a scarcity mentality. Right? That well if I were to take time to help this person, then I wouldn't have enough time to get the things done that I, that I need to do. Or if I were to, to give away this, this money to meet this need, that why don't, then I wouldn't have enough. And, and again, being poor in this sense, Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, it can be more than just materially poor, right? In the sense we're talking about. Not just about having a lack of material resources, but it is mostly that. I think, for James in this passage. But it does also mean people who are hard to love for one reason or another, and that often has to do with their material circumstances. But friends, we serve the God who made the heavens and the earth, who fed 5,000 people, right with like the equivalent of a you-pick-two lunch from Panera. He's fed over 5,000 people. And so in those moments I, when I think if only I had a little more money or a little more time or a little more courage or a little more wisdom, then I would help. Real faith steps into those places of vulnerability and lack and expects the fish and loaf multiplying power of Jesus to show up and meet our scarcity with his abundance. Because friends, that's what real faith is. That's what James is getting at with this real faith is that you say in this moment, I feel like I cannot meet this need I cannot have this conversation. I, I cannot help this person. And then you say, but I'm going to obey Jesus anyway. And you take a step forward. And that, this, is, this is what real faith is, saying I do not have the ability to do this on my own, but I'm going to trust that if I obey Jesus, that he and his power and his resources will meet me there and will show up. That's that's what real faith is. That's what I mean by the difference between just having right beliefs and actually having real faith. I'm going to step out in those places of vulnerability and weakness and obey even when it doesn't make sense, even when I don't feel like I have the ability to do that and trust that Jesus will show up and do what I could not do on my own. Real faith sets us free from favoritism because in real faith, Jesus sets the agenda for our loves. And the more we come to love what he loves, the more we come to know and treasure him, and the more we have access to his power to obey, which in turn leads to more joy and more freedom. And the mercy that we have received from him and in, in him is the place where the real explosive power comes to break the chains of favoritism, which leads us to the final choice that James presents for us this morning that is at the heart of favoritism and that is that you can justify yourself or you can receive mercy. You can justify yourself or you can receive mercy. And this is our last point here, and, and you see it beginning in verse 8, where James continues. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as a self, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you show favor, if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted of By the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in this one point, has become accountable for it all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, of the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. No, to has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and James again—he's writing to these Jewish Christians. This language of law, this is Torah—the teaching, the first five books of the of the Old Testament, in particular, the, the whole Torah. These were Christians who who had striven their whole life to obey the Torah. And James's point is: it's it's great if you haven't committed adultery, but if you ended up committing murder. And I think he picks murder here as a particular example because not only Jesus further teaching the Sermon on the Mount, that if we're angry at someone, that we're essentially committing murder in our hearts. I think he's saying when you treat people with this kind of favor and exclusion, you are essentially murdering people. Some scholars even think there's actual literal murder happening in this community, and maybe it's just an example that, that James gives. But the point is, it's great if you haven't committed adultery, but if you Murder in your heart, or in reality, you're guilty of the whole thing. And James reminds us that Jesus himself summarized the whole law. He commanded us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The whole Bible he said, the whole will of God for your life in those two commands. That's what James calls the, the royal law here, or the law of liberty, the law of freedom. You see where I'm getting this idea that, that real faith sets us free from favoritism. This freedom, this liberty language that Paul, or that James uses here in this passage. The law of freedom is not a law of obligation. As Jesus followers, we don't love our neighbor, especially our vulnerable, hard-to-love neighbor, because we have to, We do it because we know that our faith, when it works itself out in love of others, is a response to the love and freedom that we have received in Jesus, which liberated us from the consequences of sin and death. A law of liberty on the heart. That's what Christians do. That's what real faith is. And we will be judged by it. Our ability to love our neighbor, to serve one another without favoritism is a sign that we have received mercy from Jesus. And this is really where James has been going all along that the real problem underneath all the other ones the real thing that's at the heart of this favoritism is that we are trying to justify ourselves that we stop seeing ourselves as those who are in need of mercy this is the real problem underneath all the other ones That any time we show favoritism to the rich among us, that we show indifference or neglect to the poor among us, we have forgotten how much we have received in mercy from Jesus. That we've lost touch with our own poverty, our own vulnerability, our own unloveliness, that the Lord of the universe has dealt with on the cross of grace. Because the more we internalize and trust and believe in Jesus's mercy, the more mercy, the more love, the more compassion and service will be evident toward others in our lives. There's a direct relationship to how much we love and how loved we are and how much mercy we show and how much mercy we have received. And this is why Jesus always points out that the ones who love him the best are always the ones who have received the most mercy. And Jesus' point is not that the the sinners and the tax collectors and and the others need more mercy than the religious teachers and the Pharisees and scribes. Not that they need more mercy, it's that they're willing to receive more mercy than the others. The scribes and the Pharisees, and they they needed just as much mercy, but it's the, the tax collectors, the poor, the excluded, the outcasts who receive more mercy for Jesus. And it's why they are always given as such examples of faith. Why James at multiple points in his book is going to point out that they are pictures of this kind of faith. Because they know their need for mercy. They receive more mercy. It's those of us, which is probably many of us, if not most of us in this room, who seem to have all that we need, who are most at risk of forgetting how much mercy it took for us to be a part of this family. To be in this room right now, There can be moments when we find at the edges of our thoughts these kinds of things creeping in, that we feel better about ourselves because, well, at least we're not poor. We're not that broken. Or we're natural citizens. Or we're not a single parent. Or we're not an addict. Or we're not on unemployment. Or at least unpopular. But the moment that those little tendrils of thought start to creep into our thinking. We must instantly reconsider and combat those thoughts with the truth that we are in desperate need of grace, that we are rebels, that we are outcasts, that we are exiles, that we have only been brought near by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And friends, Jesus' kingdom is free of favorites because Jesus' kingdom is full of people who know that they are in desperate need of mercy and have received that mercy from their king. And those who are forgiven much love much and are free, free from judging, free from favoritism. So Jesus, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it start here. May it start with me. May it start with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done in our lives. Would you show us those places where we are still trying to justify ourselves by judging us to be better than others? The places where we still, rather than looking to you for mercy and acceptance and comfort and control and power, that we look to others to meet that need and and end up excluding and treating others poorly. Would you set us free especially now as we turn to the Lord's Supper to taste and touch the goodness of the gospel, would it break the bonds of favoritism in our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.